Hi, welcome to Beef Cattle Institute's Bovine Science with BCI. And today we've got a special episode where I've actually got two experts here today, Dr. Bob Larson and Dr. Philip Lancaster. Hi, guys. Hello, guys. Hello. So today we wanted to talk about, and as we come through the winter, winter is often meeting season. And at meetings, you have an opportunity to hear some of the latest science that's out there. And so I've asked you guys to kind of prepare a quick list of abstracts that we can talk about what are some of the things that you've learned recently that you think may be of interest to our listeners. So, Bob, I'm going to ask you first for one of your one of the things that you've seen recently that, hey, this was pretty cool and could be helpful. Yeah. So I attended the Academy of Veterinary Consultants meeting in Kansas City back in December, and we had a number of really interesting speakers that presented on topics that I think are important to, to veterinarians. One was uh, Dr. Jordan Thomas from the University of Missouri. Uh, he's a reproductive physiologist, and they've got a good uh, team over there that does a lot of work looking at heifer development. And his, his topic is really looking at heifer development in a high-cost world, which, I mean, that's always true, but particularly right now, you know, the, the replacement heifer herself is worth quite a bit of money when she's weaned, as well as feed costs uh, to, to get her pregnant and some of the things to consider. Uh, I thought he did a nice job of focusing on, um, you know, one of the ways is, is your denominator is pregnant females. And so you want a pretty high percentage of the females to become pregnant. So things we can do to enhance fertility, including nutrition to make sure they meet target weights, uh, using a, a synchronization program that might jumpstart some of those heifers, and then using really good estrus detection if you're going to use AI and those types of things. Try to get that denominator pretty high. So quite a few heifers pregnant. But he also emphasized, you can go overboard, that that the denominator is the cost <laughs> per heifer pregnant. And most of that cost is going to be the, the two big things we talked about, the cost of the heifer herself and the feed cost. So the cost of the heifer herself, basically what that means maybe is I don't want to keep back more heifers than I need. Now, I, I do need to keep back more heifers than I absolutely need as pregnant, but I don't want to overcompensate and keep a bunch of heifers back um, just in case I need them. So, you, so again, it kind of goes back to make sure you're pretty good at heifer development. And then he did talk about some of the nutritional constraints of, you know, growing those heifers in a, at an appropriate rate using and do some budgeting uh, for cost-effective feeding. So he really did. It was a pretty broad topic. So he focused on some reproductive physiology things. He also t focused on some nutritional aspects but the concept being to try to get that uh, cost per pregnant female um, as reasonable as we can, given the constraints that we have right now. And so he did an hour presentation. And for those of you that are ABC members, you can actually go view that presentation if you want. Uh, it'll be on the BCI site or you can go through the ABC site to hit BCI. Bob, I wanted to ask you as, as follow up to that, because I was there also and I appreciated his perspective. It was really good. But it's a single-year budget. Mm -hmm. And heifers are real. How many heifers I save is not a single-year decision, That's right? I, it may be made this year, but it impacts if I want to have a static herd size, I, I, I could either do that by saving the same number of heifers every year, or I could go up and down a little bit. And there was no accounting for... Yeah the long-term horizon because those heifers depreciation is one of our biggest yeah. costs of having yeah. cows 
and I'm changing my depreciation costs when I save more heifers when they're really high priced. How, how do you factor that in the, the long-term impacts? Yeah, well, I'm going to give a shout out to, to Dr. Harlan Hughes. He was from North Dakota State. He's the one that taught me to think about this in that in the, the problem is there's some constraints that we have here. He, he's talking about in a typical cattle cycle, you know, maybe a 10-year cattle cycle, you know, heifers that I'm retaining in uh, – 2023, so they, they were weaned in 2023, I retain them, well, they're going to get bred in 2024, their calves are going to calve in 2024 late, and, or, or 2025 20, early, yeah. and then they're going to they're gonna wean those calves in 2025 late. So their first calf comes two years after I kept her as a replacement heifer. Well, if I keep her at the high of the cattle cycle, uh, her first calf comes in two years after the high, and then kind of her running age, that four to seven, is in the trough of the cattle cycle. So I, I kept her when 500-pound calves are worth the most, and she's in peak production when 500-pound calves are worth the least, if we have a kind of a typical 10-, 12-year cattle cycle. That's kind of sobering to think about in that do I even want want to keep very many of those and contrast that with say heifers that I keep in the trough of a cattle cycle well they have their first they sell their first calf two years after the trough and she's in peak running age kind of during better part of the cattle cycle so what Harlan Hughes the concept that and he probably isn't the very first one but he's the first one I heard talk about it was we'll keep more heifers when they're worth less and keep fewer heifers when they're worth more so that you're, and the, the difference is though, then my herd age kind of fluctuates over time. You know, my average herd age would, would fluctuate based on when I kept a bulk of the replacement cows. But gosh, I, there's some real logic to that. And that goes to your point of the budget, meaning I probably need to keep some replacement in a fairly large ranch. I need to keep some replacement heifers, even when uh, calf prices are really high, but I may not keep as many as I do at other times of the cycle. Well, and I've seen people talk about that as dollar cost averaging. So just as if you were if you were investing in, say, the stock market, you, you would invest a set amount of money each period, maybe monthly. And sometimes that buys you more stocks than other times because there's not a, a defined cycle there. Kind of like on your heifers, though, if you say, I'm going to, instead of the number of heifers or the percent of my herd that I'm going to save, I'm going to save X number of dollars, which means over time, then I'm going to keep fewer when the prices are high and I'm going to keep more when the prices are low. I, I would challenge, though, I'm not sure the cattle cycle follows that 10 yeah, the latest not, data i've seen you look I at know. the supply numbers it's a little harder to predict <laughs> it's, hard it's a little harder to predict when those troughs and peaks are going to be uh, but we it's all something, say that but it's not a 10-year cycle it's not i know but it's something to consider of you do want to buy low sell high in this case so I, right that yeah. yes dustin's not here so yeah yeah you, you, you go on you economist wanna, yeah mr economist <laughs> you do want to buy low sell high meaning that if, if heifers are worth a lot, 500 pounds, I don't want to necessarily buy a lot of those, yeah. uh, buy them as replacements and bring them into my herd. I maybe want to wait till they're lower uh, because when I buy high, um, the best case scenario is I buy high, sell high. That's the best case scenario. And I'm not sure that's going to happen. Okay. 
Excellent. So I, I think that was a good topic. And, and again, if you want to go learn more about that, that was a, a really good presentation. Philip, I know you went to some places and saw some abstracts too. So t tell us a little bit about what you've seen that kind of got you interested. Last spring, went to the Plains Nutrition Council meeting um, in San Antonio. And there are several abstracts there related around liver abscess. It's a hot topic right now. Um, but there was one where they've looked at trying to develop a challenge model so that we can test different products, different dietary strategies, whatever, to try to mitigate liver abscess. So this was just the, the initial study that tried to develop the challenge model. Um, and what they did was they, they had two diets. One they, they called the control diet, and it was more of a growing type diet. It was about 30% roughage, had a lot of corn byproducts in it, and then a little bit of dry rolled corn. And then they called the, they had the, the other diet they called the acidotic diet. And the acidotic diet was about 50% steam flaked corn, um, some byproduct, corn byproducts, and only about 5% roughage. So they were really trying to push a lot of starch into those calves um, for, for that diet. And then they, they had another treatment where they took the acidotic diet and then they, and they dosed those calves with fusobacterium, Truparella pyrogenes, if I say that right, and Salmonella lubic. And so they were trying to basically induce liver abscesses in that set. Orally, orally dosed them? Yeah. How did they dose them? Yeah, they orally dosed those calves, yep. Um, and so some interesting outputs from that were that when they, they looked at uh, rumen lesions, um, percent of calves with lumen lesions at slaughter and necropsy. So they slaughtered those calves after this challenge. And so the control, 100% um, of the rumens were normal. Um, in the acidotic diet, they had 60% were normal and 40% were what they called mild uh, lesions. And then in the acidotic diet with the bacterial challenge, they had 20% normal and 80% that had what they called mild lesions. So same diet, but adding those um, bacterial components in, uh, increased the severity or the, the incidence of rumen lesions. So what was the incidence of lesions in just the acidotic diet with no challenge? 60-40, normal okay. to mild. Yeah. Yeah. And then so basically it went from 0 to 60 to 80% mild lesions. 0 yep. to 40 to 80. Yeah. Yeah. Zero to four, yeah, zero to 40 to 80. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then they, they have some pH data there, and the ones on the acidotic diets are, had uh, definitely some bigger drops in pH. We had more time below five and a half um, pH in, in the rumen and those types of things. And then they had um, the, the control and the acidotic treatments had no liver abscesses at when they slaughtered them after this challenge. But the ones on the acidotic diet with the bacterial challenge had 50% liver abscesses in those, those calves. Now, there weren't a whole lot of calves. I think they only did about 8 or 10 calves per treatment in this study. And so um, there's not a whole lot of numbers there. But zero to 50. I mean, if, I, if I can challenge those calves in a couple weeks time and get 50% liver abscesses, that's a model that I think has some use for us to be able to test some products um, and has some benefits going forward as far as trying to figure out some of the reasons and, and things around liver abscess development. The tricky part with disease challenge models is calibrating to get enough 
of the lesion you want, whether we're talking about liver abscesses or any other disease challenge, I need to get a strong enough challenge that I get enough of the lesion I want, but not so strong a challenge that it would be uh, overwhelm any potential intervention. Mm -hmm. So that, that seems like uh, pretty interesting and pretty good progress compared to some of the liver as abscess challenge models of old we're basically either injecting into the liver or some way that we think is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this is a little bit more of a natural challenge model. than Closer to natural. Mm -hmm. So uh, two questions. W one, did they only look at the rumen or did they also look at the hindgut for lesions? They did look at the colon um, as well. Um, and uh, looking at the, the colon, there was not really any differences in the um, percentage of calves with colon lesions um, in in this scenario but you know and that's a good question because there's there's been some thought and and hypothesis that maybe uh, some of these bacterial um, components coming into liver are actually coming from the hindgut because if you think about the structural um, integrity of the rumen versus the hindgut you've got a, a much stronger physical barrier in the rumen than you do in the hindgut relative to the effect of um, acidic conditions and how that would affect the ability of bacteria to cross that epithelium. Okay, second, second question, and you, and you mentioned, and I'll ask you to just kind of speculate beyond what they did in the study, but you mentioned this is maybe a more natural challenge because we're feeding an acidotic diet and then we're giving those bacteria. Where would cattle normally get those bacteria, right? So where, where, would, where would they come from to, if that's one of the ways that they're causing these liver abscesses? And it seemed like in this case, they were an important component that you could have the acidosis, but you still didn't get the effect unless you added those bacteria. Mm -hmm. um, well, at my, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Fusobacterium and Truparilla are normal um, components of the rumen microbiome. Um, it's, it's when some... But they would have been there in those calves that got the acidotic diet yep. then at the normal it, component level. Yeah, and so it's so, something may be happening where the population of those bacteria is exploding in the rumen and then we get those lesions and then we get uh, those bacteria crossing the uh, rumen epithelium. Um, salmonella, I mean, present in the environment, you know, they, they can pick that up. I'm not sure, top of my head, what the prevalence of salmonella uh, in the rumen is um, in feedlot cattle, but um, they're going to pick that up from the environment. Wherever it just, at. It, it's kind of like... Uh talk to the toxicologist, talk to Fritz, and he's like, yeah, everything's toxic, it's all dose, right? So, so those bacteria, it seems like it's following kind of that same thing is how many are there. So it, it'd be an interesting line of research to see what do we do that tweaks that bacterial population because there's a really cool design study with the three arms that you have. Uh, the acidosis ones didn't get, and, and of course in the short term of the study, didn't get enough to have liver abscesses, but the ones once you challenge them with that bacteria. So it'd be interesting to try to figure out what's going on to cause that that we see when we're seeing these high cases of liver abscesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lots, did they, did they have any conclusions on what's next for their, uh, um, for their line of research? They had some follow-up studies um, where they tried to, or they evaluated a commercial product um, in that challenge model and didn't see any benefit of, of the commercial product. Okay, excellent. 
Bob, do you, do you have another one? Yeah, another another interesting topic. Uh, Dr. Mike Kleinheinz, who was at Kansas State when he did some of this research, and now he's at Texas A&M. But uh, he talked a little bit about, he's a pharmacologist, and he's one of his areas of interest is really pain control and kind of shifting even more into anti-inflammatory. And, you know, I, I'm going to use some human health uh, analogies, but, you know, aspirin and Tylenol, those are those are what we call non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And their action is to uh, kind of inhibit the inflammatory pathway for some of the things that we know can cause pain, headaches, muscle aches, those types of things. And, and it's big, the, the interest in pain control in cattle really came through some animal welfare questions about dehorning and castration. Um, and can we give something like those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to help with those? Um, and But it's morphed into some other things that we know that can cause some pain, inflammation, muscle problems, such as calving. You know, so the process of calving um, is is going to cause some uh, muscle strain, to to say the least. Um, is there our advantages? I think I think it's probably more than just muscle yeah, strain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, to say the least. And so then the question becomes: Well, what about dosing some anti-inflammatories? Um, and so I'm just going to briefly kind of go over some of the things that he talked about. Was there's probably some advantages to that. Now, the disadvantages are. Just like um, in humans, you know, if you take a lot of aspirin, you can get some, some problems. You can get some stomach ulcers and other things, and cattle are relatively sensitive to that as well. And so you can definitely overdo this. The other thing is we've got products that are orally administered or administered on the skin that are absorbed. And they have, in, in order to get, and, and think about it, if you, if you really had some muscle pain, if it was pretty pretty mild or pretty short duration, then maybe one or two doses uh, would be appropriate to kind of get you through that. And but in other times when the inflammation is is longer longer standing, you're going to need multiple doses. And so another negative from a implementation on cattle size is the need to redose, you know, multiple times. And and this might again be orally. So uh, in a bolus or something like that, possibly in the feed. Um, and so there are some, basically the way I'm interpreting Dr. Kleinheinz's research is there are some opportunities here to look at inflammation and control of inflammation beyond just pain um, that some of the dairy work would say maybe some improvement in that early lactation production. That's what um, I was going to go to. Some of the dairy work, when yeah. they put it on within 24 hours of calving, they had more milk production throughout yeah. that lactation. So there may be some, some health, welfare, production benefits to looking at inflammation and controlling inflammation, but the drugs we have have some limitations. And so we're going to have to balance those opportunities with the limitations. But it's an area of interesting research that, that's going on right now. And, and pretty, you talked about some of the potential downsides, but pretty limited downsides if I only have to do a single dose and I'm only doing it on animals that I've already got captured for some reason, like a dystocia. Yeah. Is, is what's coming to my mind is on a dystocia, I'm not sure. I don't know why I wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. do that. And, and it hasn't been part of my normal thought process, which is what I, when, when I hear him talk, I go, man, I don't know why I wouldn't do that. And I, I kind of wonder, and there's been no research that I'm aware of, looking at the babies right the, the calf that was born right yeah. so so would i treat both and yeah. and certainly something to consider and be interesting to see I, I think there is some research being conducted in that area 
uh, be interesting to see what yeah I think there'll be turns out more interesting things coming out all right Philip you got one one last abstract real quick yeah well this is I don't have the abstract in front of me but I was at a, a meeting again focused on liver abscesses here this fall um, not surprising and, that you went to a liver abscess yeah, meeting. Yeah, been going to quite a few of those lately. Um, but uh, saw some interesting work there that, that kind of goes against what we think. So in, in the study that was presented, it, it's kind of like the, the, other, the, the first one we talked about here today, is they had a diet that was kind of, um, kind of a growing diet, more roughage content, more um, corn byproducts in it. And then they had a uh, more acidotic diet, again, very low roughage, very high steam flake corn and pushing. And then they looked at taking that acidotic diet and they looked at um, fluctuating or variable feed delivery. So they, they developed a, a random schedule of where they um, feeded, or they feeded, they, sorry, they fed um, those calves. You know, an hour late one day, they fed them too much one day or too little one day. And, and so sometimes that would be back-to-back days, sometimes not, because they tried to do this randomly. So it would be as if those calves were getting uh, variable um, intake patterns is what they were trying to simulate. And what was interesting is they saw um, an increase in liver abscesses in the acidotic group. Um, I mean, they really pushed them, and, and they had quite a few. I, I think it was, again, probably around, I think it was around 50% of those calves when they slaughtered them. But the fluctuating group had lower liver abscesses than the other group. So, like, the fluctuation in feed delivery pattern and f- feed intake did not negatively affect those calves. Which it's, is counter to what we would yes, typically think. Yes, that's what we typically think. And so, so I think that was a really interesting data to see. And if, and if you go look at, so I look back through some literature, and there's been some other studies where they've tried to do that, and not necessarily looking at liver abscess, but looking at performance, and they don't see any decrease in performance when they fluctuate um, intake or feed delivery in those calves, um, except for a couple of studies. So the difference between the two studies that I can see right off is the ones where they did not see any difference is the cattle were fed ad libitum. Um, but then the other, the other couple of studies where they did see a negative effect was those cattle were on a programmed feeding um, plan or, or, or restricted intake program. And so for whatever reason, that, that fluctuation when you're on a restricted intake negatively affects the production and performance of those calves, but not when those calves are on ad libitum intake. And so maybe it's those calves have developed their feeding pattern and so it doesn't necessarily matter so much if I have a a screw up in feed delivery time or amount because their pattern is set pretty much when they're on ad libitum intake. Because if they're on ad lib they can always go get all the feed they want to get. If you're on restricted sometimes if it goes up and down that's exactly what happens to you. So Mm -hmm. that's really interesting work there and I appreciate you guys going out and keeping track of this stuff and bringing back some of the, because it's always interesting to me, uh, not only the research that's being done, but having you guys give me your perspective on what you learned from each of those studies, and we'll certainly have to do this again. Appreciate you joining us on this special episode of Bovine Science with BCI.